0: Hello and welcome to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. This is the French Revolutionary Wars of 1787 to 1802, Part 1. In the early hours of Tuesday, the 14th of July, 1789, the city of Paris was in a state of alarm. The last days had already seen clashes between the army of the ruling monarch, Louis XVI, and a citizen's militia. Their cause was a righteous one, the rebels declared, an end to oppression by the ruling class and greater recognition of their rights. As violence and disorder mounted on the streets, Louis was losing control of his capital as several of his units refused to follow orders and even went over to the demonstrators. Here and there, there were some clashes between the crowd and soldiers that remained loyal. But the king's commanders pulled their men back for fear of risking further mutinies. On the 14th of July, a large crowd first stormed the great military complex of Les Invalides. Meeting the resistance, they seized a substantial number of muskets. Gunpowder, however, was lacking, and it was soon discovered that the city's stock had been transferred to the medieval castle known as the Bastille, which also served as a royal prison. A hastily organised force, around a thousand men, closed in on the fortress. Two representatives of the crowd outside were invited into the fortress and negotiations began. But as the negotiations dragged on, the crowd grew impatient and surged into the undefended outer courtyard. Soldiers of the garrison called to the people to withdraw, but in the noise and confusion these shouts were misinterpreted as encouragement to enter. Gunfire began, unknown from where, and the crowd became violent. There followed sporadic negotiations, interspersed with outbursts of fighting. Finally, the governor of the castle, unprepared for siege, without any help from the royal troops in the city, was persuaded that further resistance was pointless, and therefore laid down his arms, not that it saved him from being lynched. The attackers became the first heroes of the French Revolution, and their dead its first martyrs. The storming of the Bastille, as the famous incident which marks the beginning of the French Revolution, is an iconic moment, not just for French, but world history. As well as profound social and political changes, the Revolution is also closely associated with more than two decades of nearly uninterrupted warfare, from 1792 to 1815, which caused widespread devastation across the continent. This set of episodes focuses on the first half of the conflict up to 1802, known as the French Revolutionary Wars. However, to get a full picture of events it is necessary to go back a little further, to the mid-1780s, when a series of separate events were threatening the stability of Europe. In the 1780s, the people of Western and Central Europe had enjoyed a period of peace, with no major conflict since the end of the Seven Years' War in 1763. As described in a previous episode, the outcome of the Seven Years' War was confirmation of the status of five great powers on the continent. Prussia and Russia confirmed their membership of that group, and Habsburg-Austria also maintained their position. Britain decisively established their supremacy overseas against their main rivals, Spain and France. France, which at the beginning of the century was without doubt the most powerful state militarily on the continent, had suffered the most. By seeking to wage war simultaneously at sea in the colonies and on the continent, France was defeated in all three theatres, inflicting deep wounds in the French sense of national pride. In addition, France's influence in Eastern Europe was on the wane, as her three traditional allies, Sweden, Poland, and the Ottoman Empire, all suffered decline. The continental balance of power shifted further against France in 1772, when large parts of the territory of Poland-Lithuania were divided up between Russia, Prussia, and Austria. The Russians then made further territorial gains with the annexation of the Crimean Peninsula and further conquests on the northern shore of the Black Sea and the Caucasus. Catherine the Great and her court in St. Petersburg were optimistic for yet further gains from the Ottomans, who appeared to be in sharp decline. Russia's expansion was of particular concern to Maria Theresa and her court in Vienna, but they also saw opportunities themselves to extend their borders to the south at the expense of the Ottomans. The next event to illustrate the shift of the balance of power away from France and towards Russia was a succession crisis in Bavaria, occasioned by the death in late December 1777 of Elector Maximilian III without an heir. The Habsburg dynasty of Austria had long coveted the electorate for its strategic position, directly to the west of Austria, which had repeatedly been an access point for foreign invasions. Possession of Lower Bavaria around the River Inn would give them control of the Upper Danube and create a solid block of territory from Bohemia in the north to Tyrol in the Alps, would help to link up with Habsburg possessions in Italy. The Austrian Emperor, Joseph II, therefore put forward proposals for acquiring Bavaria in exchange for giving up the Austrian Netherlands, which was seen in Vienna as a distant and expensive distraction. Austria's nominal ally, France, refused all assistance, and Joseph's plans were vehemently opposed by King Frederick II, the great of Prussia who had a vested interest in preventing anything that could strengthen the Habsburgs. In the War of Bavarian Succession, 1778-79, to 79, neither side really wanted conflict, and in fact no battle actually took place. Negotiations were carried out while armies manoeuvred, and in the final piece a compromise was agreed, whereby the Habsburgs acquired the strategic southeastern corner of Bavaria, around the River Inn. It was not an insignificant gain, but far less than Joseph originally sought. It was Russian mediation which shaped the peace settlement, and Catherine the Great's threat to enter the war played a major part in persuading Joseph to abandon his forward position. An important consequence was therefore Russia becoming a guarantor of the status quo in the Holy Roman Empire and therefore gains significant influence in Western Europe as well as in the East, again at the expense of France. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too, Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Foreign Minister for France, the Count of Vergennes, made the central conviction of his policy that the power of the two countries on the periphery of Europe, Russia and Great Britain was increasing, and ought to be diminished. The War of Bavarian Succession coincided with the War of American Independence, which for Vergennes offered a golden opportunity to harm British interests. Stripped of her own American territories in the Seven Years' War, The French sought revenge, by assisting the colonists in North America fight for their independence, responding to the enthusiasm of the French public to humiliate the British. The trigger for action was in October 1777, when the British surrendered to the Americans at Saratoga, which made it clear that there would be no quick and easy victory for Britain. The French king, Louis XVI, agreed to send money and weapons to the colonists and the French navy got ready for war. Without the assistance of the French, not to mention the Spanish and Dutch, the Americans would not have won their independence in the manner and speed they did. The decisive battle took place in the autumn of 1781 at Yorktown in Virginia, where a British army found itself trapped between a Franco-American army led by George Washington and the Marquess of Lafayette, and a French fleet of 24 ships. The next year, however, the British won back control of the Atlantic and Caribbean from the French, and a combined Franco-Spanish force sent to capture Gibraltar failed comprehensively. At the same time, the British navy also fended off attacks by the French in India. And so early in 1793, the British, while accepting the loss of their American colonies, were able to negotiate a peace of the Treaty of Versailles better than any imagined a year earlier. Canada, Newfoundland and Nova Scotia remained British, while French gains were modest. The island of Tobago and a few trading stations in Senegal and India. The common expectation in Europe was that Britain would be greatly diminished by the loss of her American colonies. But in fact, if the British had failed to win the war, as writes Tim Blanning, they certainly won the peace. The loss of political control in America was quickly compensated for by expansion of commerce between the two nations. British trade with the rest of the world, especially of the East, quickly regained, and it exceeded pre-war levels. Industrial output grew in proportion benefiting especially from the resumption of uninterrupted supplies of raw cotton. The British switched their focus to India, which became the central pillar of their imperial ambitions. As for the French, the cost of war nearly bankrupted their country, and yet again they expended their blood and their gold for the sake of third parties, in this case the Americans and Spanish, who regained Florida and Menorca. Yet again, French foreign policy appeared to be drifting aimlessly, with poor strategic aims. The cost of their navy quadrupled, and the cost of service in debt of the French government was quickly spiralling out of control and consuming more than half the state's income. There was a further effect, not obvious at the time, that the success of the colonists in asserting what they claimed to be the natural rights to be governed by consent proved a great stimulus to the reform movement in France, particularly through the feedback from French officers and volunteers who had served with the colonists. Another conflict which occurred at the time was the Fourth Anglo-Dutch War, 1780-84. Although Great Britain and the Dutch Republic had been allies since the glorious revolution of 1688, the Dutch had become very much the junior partner in the alliance, and had steadily lost influence in world trade to the British. The Republic's military weakness became very evident during the War of the Austrian Succession. Then in the Seven Years' War, the Dutch avoided the cost of war by remaining neutral, but they neglected both their army and navy. Initially, the British considered the Dutch allies in their attempt to stamp out the rebellion in their North American 13 colonies. The Dutch, however, not only declined to help the British, but their merchants became actively involved in the supply of arms and munitions to rebels, conducted via the entrepôt of the island of St Eustatius in the Caribbean. The last draw for the British was the Republic's decision to join the League of Armed Neutrality, initiated by Catherine the Great of Russia, which sought to preserve the rights of neutral maritime nations, but which in practice was aimed chiefly against the British. The war had dramatic consequences for the Dutch. Within a few weeks, hundreds of their merchant ships were seized by the British and trade practically stopped, triggering a severe economic decline. The other main consequence of the war was the further politicisation of a portion of the Dutch population, which threw the Republic into a deep political crisis. This was in part inspired by the ideas of the Enlightenment, an intellectual movement which inspired the educated classes towards a social revolution. The Enlightenment's emphasis on how society could be reshaped to improve the welfare of the common people had great appeal in a country which benefited from a high level of education and literacy, but which was considered by its citizens to be in a state of decay, militarily, economically and morally. The political crisis was also in some ways a rerun of the factional strife that had afflicted the Dutch Republic periodically ever since its foundation. Between on the one side the maritime provinces, led by the merchant oligarchs, the regents and on the other, the landed interests, led by the head of the House of Orange, which exercised ill-defined executive authority as the stadtholder. In the previous decade, it was the regents who had got the upper hand, but in the course of the 1780s, a new movement entered the contest, known as the party of so-called Patriots, who looked for more radical and even democratic reforms, including the total abolition of the stadtholderate. The Patriots put the blame of the Republic's decline on the British and the Stadtholder, Prince William V, who they attacked in their pamphlets. Their three aims, write J. H. C. Blom and E. Lambert in their History of the Low Countries, were firstly a recovery of the Dutch position as a major power, secondly more participation by the middle class in local government, and, thirdly, a moral revival inspired by the Enlightenment. Their proposals were not exceptionally radical, and their successes varied considerably from place to place due to the decentralised nature of their movement. At the same time, the domestic struggle took on an international dimension when the Dutch signed a treaty with the French in 1785. The British were highly alarmed at the treaty which they feared would give the French control of Dutch naval bases at the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa and in Ceylon, as well as potentially threatening an offensive from across the Channel. In the year 1786, tensions between the Patriots and Orangists had become so high that the country verged on civil war. The struggle for power was still undecided when Princess Wilhelmina, the wife of Prince William V and sister of the King of Prussia, tried to break the impasse by returning to the Hague from Niemegen, where she had resided during the unrest, and to rally support for her husband's cause. She was detained by a radical wing of the Patriots, and although she was released soon after, the Prussians were encouraged by the British to solve the Dutch problem by force. The recently crowned King of Prussia, Frederick William II was ambitious and impulsive, eager to emulate his predecessor Frederick the Great and to make his mark. The Patriots offered almost no resistance to the professional Prussian army of some 25,000 men. They hoped for assistance from their French ally, but support from Paris failed to materialise. The Foreign Minister Vergennes had recently passed away, and King Louis XIV was not confident enough to intervene. For many contemporary Frenchmen, their King's inaction was yet another national humiliation, as they looked on in furious disbelief, as Prussians and the British took over control of their neighbour and ally. The Orangist restoration came with political repression. Thousands of Patriots fled their cities, or Republic itself, many to France. Their movement, however, continued to function underground and threatened to reassert itself whenever it might have the chance to rise again. Next week I begin relating the events of the French Revolutionary Wars, which in the beginning didn't actually involve France at all, but instead started as a conflict between Russia and Austria against the Ottoman Empire. I hope you can join me then. In the meantime, check out the podcast Facebook page or Patreon page if you would like to help support the show. Thank you for listening, and until next time, all the best and goodbye.